Okay, hello everybody. Getting started here. Let's see, we've got David Slater joining us today, inviting Matt Clancy, and inviting Arpit Gupta to join us as speakers here. Okay, in the meantime, let me introduce David a little bit. David is a professor of law at Yale University, and David is, I would say, uh, one of, if not the leading academic writers on the issues of NIMBYs and zoning issues. And what we are going to talk about today is just that. We're going to talk about zoning and NIMBYism and GIMM and all the various ways that those things are or aren't related to, to uh, remote work. I think a plug here as well for uh, David's podcast and uh, a recent really interesting episode with Ed Glazer. It also covered a lot of these aspects of how cities are changing with COVID, how to think about remote work, and in particular, how to think about regulation of housing in the context of these shifting forces. Yeah, that was a really great paper. Definitely going to be speaking with him about that. Thank you for joining us, David. David, am I pronouncing your name right, first off? It's Schleicher. Schleicher. Um, yeah, it's all right, though. It's a, there are a lot of consonants in there, so it's, right. uh, it's, it's tough. As an Ozamac, I can empathize with you. <laughs> Let's jump right in, David. David, what's the symbiism in 2021? Let's talk about the legal uh, efforts. Are, is, is what's happening in California, is it really a big deal? And are we going to see more of this? So it's, I describe symbiism in America as very resilient and unsurprisingly so, um, given that it derives from, largely speaking, the interests of homeowners in protecting the value of their most important asset. And so uh, in California have been quite promising. I think that a little more, too much attention was given to the legal changes, uh, SB 9 and 10, which are salutary, but are unlikely to set off a huge boom in housing all on their own. And a little too little attention has been given to the state's very complex housing element and RENA process. But I would say the most exciting thing about the opposition to NIMBYism in California is not merely the legal changes or even the administrative changes that you see through this kind of complex administrative process there, but rather the fact that a somewhat steady political coalition in favor of housing growth has emerged. And what's notable is that it hasn't happened in lots of other places. The same type of thing is not happening in lots of other places. So you sort of, you have to look through the individual things at the principal component of political change here. And that's what's optimistic. But you're saying that that's not really present anywhere else. So that does that leave I mean, you optimistic? I mean, so no. I mean, there are positive things elsewhere. Um, so here's the other thing I would say that would make me optimistic, which is that I think the intellectual argument over whether... America's major metropolitan areas uh, restrict housing too much is mostly over. There are a few stragglers and a few dead enders. I respond to some of them in a recent piece called Exclusionary Zonings, Confused Defenders. But it is uh, mostly not a disputed question anymore that this is a major economic problem. The president thinks so. The leading Republicans as well as leading Democrats think so. This is a problem in which our institutions have been built to protect certain interests but that the intellectual argument is over. So I'm encouraged by what's happening in California. I'm encouraged by what's happening in academia I am a, and, in, and in the popular press. I am a, not super confident when you see things that, that we're seeing major improvements in much of the Northeast, um, which is the other, yeah. Let, let me ask you about these sort of, uh, the folks who are leaning against the consensus that you talk about in your <laughs> paper. Does the rise of these, these academics offering pushback, is this, you know, one of my buddies, Carl Smith, everybody knows Carl. He, he is a big fan of the sort of heterodox people who throw up the complaints about the consensus because he thinks they help us strengthen our arguments. When you see the critics, do you think, you know, they're pointing out some excesses in the YIMBY arguments they are helping us tighten things up? Or is this really, is it really because 
certain strain of academics, they simply cannot manage to take the deregulatory pro-market side of an issue. I think it's more the latter than the former. I mean, I think there are some perfectly reasonable arguments to be made about uh, some th- some essence. I think that most of these are not that. I think they're mostly either a kind of a not so effective contrarianism, or they are a uh, they are just refusal to accept that sometimes deregulation of markets is attractive. Um, I mean, for an example of the former, my I was taught by Bill Fischel, who's kind of the nation's leading pro zoning economist. Um, he makes some very powerful points about the ways in which uh, home zoning serves as an insurance, basically a form of insurance for people who can't insure the value of their homes. Um, and this is like a, a powerful argument, but even he accepts that under current situations, things have gone much too far along this front. So I would say, you know, I think that heterodox opinion is often good. On the other hand, like, it's not always. And that's how I would put this. And so I think it's important to remind people that this is these arguments aren't that great. The last thing I'll say is I'm a little bit worried uh, inside the realm of ideas that the case for zoning deregulation is becoming so obvious that it's ver- barely important for important academics to say it anymore. Right. Um, because it's just like, I don't know, like, you know, increases in supply result in decreases in price. Like, I don't, it's just like not, you know, it's like a, a, as an intellectual argument, a lot of it is water running downhill. And so I think it's particularly important to um, these arguments, even if they seem a little straightforward. It's like a rhetorical risk when the consensus is so far from like the popular perception, mm-hmm. but the, con- the consensus is so overwhelming that you really like, it, they're almost like in a different unit than like the normal op-ed yeah. pages. Yeah. It's not, unheard of. There are a bunch of, there are a number of other policies where there's a leak consensus. Think about in the urban space, like the number of transportation experts who don't favor some form of congestion pricing is small. Like people have been convinced by that argument. Um, uh, but the politics, it's, it exists so much nowhere. Um, and this is a real, becomes a real problem of translation between academic ideas and, or academic consensus and politics. One thing that kind of has looked a little bit menacing in the mm-hmm. in the discourse on this to me is the conservative populists who are sort of turning NIMBY. You see Tucker Carlson mm-hmm. uh, turning NIMBY and pretending that what 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 you guys want to do, uh, I mean, not you guys, we yes. guys too, as yes. NIMBY as well. What we want to do is ban single family housing. Does this worry you? Um, I mean, is this a real thing? A, is this showing up been, in the real world? This has been a trend for a very long time in the sense that, so, uh, Glenn Beck wrote a book called, I think it was Glenn Beck wrote a book called Agenda 21 about efforts to get the way that uh, kind of, with their belief that the UN was encouraging population density was a way of destroying liberty or something. And so there's been a pro-local regulatory strain in conservative populism for the last 20 or 30 years. Now, it is that the kind of fusing of the case for local regulatory control with kind of a, a Carlson t- uh, Trump did this during the end of his campaign also um, is a little worrying. Uh, sure. I mean, the one thing I say is that the economic case for the kind of output costs of rather than some of the equity uh, concerns with, with respect to land use are extremely concentrated in places where this politics is uh, most unavailing or least important. So, you know, like, the influence of this type of populist conservatism on land use debates in California strikes me as somewhat limited. Um, I am worried, though, that you're going to see in the more free building parts of the country, your your Texases and uh, Nashvilles and Atlantas, some of this effect. And that one of the things I think that would be most salutary in kind of land use policy is things that would freeze or kind of fight against some of those trends. So, yes, I'm a little worried about it. That makes sense because uh, it's not like, uh, you know, there's not a lot of Tucker listeners in San Francisco and Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, right. So. Some hate listeners, but that's about <laughs> it. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about agglomeration.
don't know whether you're going to call what we do here not really podcast. This is spaces, but I want to start referring to it as a thing. So, but we uh, something we like to talk about here in this space mm-hmm. is, a, is agglomeration. Mm-hmm. Obviously, agglomeration is a, is one of the cores to the case for EMBism. I would say um, it's at the heart of EMBism. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the strongest evidence that agglomeration is real and that it's big? Like, well, tell me about the empirical case for agglomeration yeah, so in your view. I put a couple of things together as so the Alfred Marshall famously kind of created a typology of that what why cities exist, and so why cities exist from a microeconomic perspective is a little confusing because the cost of land is higher. But why do people congregate together? What economic advantages do firms get from locating together? And he put three types of things. One is shipping, reducing shipping costs. Like if you're closer together, it costs less to ship. Um, this has become was very very important for most of American history, but it's a little less important today. The other two are labor market effects um, and idea spillovers, inter- uh, kind of information spillovers. And the labor market effects are the evidence is that there's kind of a, a couple of types of gains from concentration. Uh, one of which is specialization. Like if you're an actor in Los Angeles, you can specialize in being a you know like the best zombie at dying or something. Best at dying is a zombie from a zombie attack. Whereas if you're an actor in Salt Lake City, you have to play every role. You've got to be Shakespeare and you know that kind of thing. Um, and the second thing is is matching better matching between skills and talent, which is a related idea. And there's um, a good bit of evidence that people who move to cities gain uh, get, get both have a wage premium and gain over time. And this kind of helps it. The second, um, so this is like Glazer and Mare, 2001. Um, the second uh, thing is all, stuff on information spillovers. And this is a little more, a little looser. Uh, it's a little, we don't exactly know what we mean by information spillovers or learning from others. But there's a lot of evidence that, for instance, people are more likely to cite each other if they're physically proximate. And there's a lot of kind of uh, anecdotal stuff on learning in small communities. Uh, people, kind of, there was a debate between whether this is more common intra-industry or inter-industry, but those are the two types of moves. And I mean, I could cite a bunch of papers if you want me to, but the those are the two kind of big forces in modern agglomeration. Um, and you can add, to, I mean, there's some things you could add about the way in which information technology hits it, which so I imagine where we're going to go. But those are the two big forces that make like it, uh, more important, like like why it's good to be a lawyer in New York City or a financier in New York City, and why it's good or why and why those firms want to be there, even though they have to pay high rents, and why it's good to be an actor in Los Angeles or a technologist in Silicon Valley. So, do you think it's more the informational spillers? Do you think they're more within or between industry? So, the Glazer um, has a paper where it goes describes the inter industry as uh, martial extra, externalities. So, it's like people in the steel industry or car industry learning from one another, and inter industry as being what we call Jacobs externalities after Jane Jacobs of inter learning between things. I, for its worth, I like. I think there's evidence of both. I think that the case for inside industry is actually pretty powerful in. Um, particularly in very small geographies, um, that like you learn a lot about congressional procedure and how to be a lobbyist merely by living and hanging out on Capitol Hill. Like the people you go to dinner with also talk about unbelievably boring things, like what's happening in the Senate Judiciary Committee or whatever. And there's learning that way, and that's a kind of in-industry learning. In terms of technological stuff, I think the evidence is a little stronger for intra-industry. But you know, I, the other thing is like the industry here is playing a like what is an industry? Like are we using a market power definition? The way that we think about an antitrust doesn't necessarily make the same sense in this context. So like I think there might be learning across classes of software developers. But is that one industry or several industries? I don't know. You know, one of the things that I think is interesting is to to try to conceptualize sort of the opposite of this, which is like, you know, does there does the informational spillovers, do they also generate groupthink? And is the really, you know, you, you might think that in some places and times we get past the optimal level of geographic concentration because, you know, like like you said, like 
you know, these, these agglomerations are occurring outside the firm. And so mm-hmm. they're not, they're not necessarily being optimized. Um, and so like, we're sort of lucky that they exist some, in some ways, but you know, they're positive externalities, but yeah. there, might, there might be negative externalities. I think oh, the, the, sure. the clearest I case right. of this is the media, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, what I'd say to that, I mean, it's a really nice point is that some degree of groupthink is actually quite optimal for idea generation, right? So like if you, that, but for the very reason that it makes you different from other people. And so that like, think of an artistic community that's all building ideas off one another to not be constantly like questioning the value that I think that you see some of that in Silicon Valley, which is these ideas seem nuts. Um, uh, but because they're in a community that's supportive of them, you hear this from technologists sometimes, but it's definitely the case that it also has problems. The hope is that uh, in many of these communities, there's a lot of competition um, and that competition would both, that there'd be both kind of the development of these ideas, I spillovers, but also of competition among them. And so, uh, but you know, I, that's not to deny the point, except to say that there are, I mean, there are a lot of forces going together. These, we're talking about what the underlying of what some people call the human humanity's greatest technology, the city. Um, and so, of course, things could be too big. It's, 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 when there's externalities around, we're not talking about optimality in any meaningful sense. So my Silicon Valley friends and people are going to be uh, displeased with this comment, yes. but I'm going to make it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, I think it's really easy to look back at the early days of the semiconductors, the early days of the computer industry, things like the, you know, the homebrew computers, mm-hmm. um, like, and, and the dynamism that existed between companies that was so different. It was so different than what you hear about, like the computer makers in the Northeast. Like this is the Annalise Saxenian story about the, right. the, the cultural differences. And like, it seems pretty clear, at least in history, historically looking back, that like these cultural factors were really consequential. And you can see like in the stories of the founding of these companies, how important this, the cultural aspects. I'm sort of wondering if we've come to the point in society where the, the culture is a, is a net negative and that the spreading of the tech companies outside of Silicon Valley and away from that kind of group link is going to be more positive than negative. And like the key symptom, like if you look like what's the symptom of a problem here? Um, I would say like you see so much excessive optimism around the power of crypto and NFTs and all this stuff, which is like most of these have like some kind of use case somewhere. So it's not like nothing, but it's like the zeal, the like the religious level of zeal that's coming around these things and how disconnected from, I think, realism they are. It sort of suggested, you know, are, are we going to yes. benefit from spreading away from that for a bit? I can say, I mean, so there's a question about whether something's gone wrong in Silicon Valley, and I don't, I'm not a super expert on the specifics of Silicon Valley. One thing I'll note about your sex input is it's not just a cultural story, it's a legal story. So this is the role of covenants not to compete, the kind of the research on that and how that drove a lot of the inter-firm mixing in Silicon Valley. Um, now, like, I don't have any strong priors about crypto. They, it seems strange to me, but and, you know, it streams strange to me millions and millions and billions of dollars ago. And so I don't know um, uh, how to think about it, really, but um, or whether it's optimal or anything of that sort. Um, but I will say that um, that uh, to the extent that tech does move away from Silicon Valley or because it's not likely to be spread so much as with alternate hubs. Um, and I, one thing you've seen already is that New York City has become a really big tech hub, um, mostly kind of driven by the interactions between tech and finance. And, uh, and tech and advertising, also a few other things. Um, and so, you know, I don't know whether the extreme concentration in Silicon Valley and San Francisco is uh, like it's not creating too much groupthink. Again, I'm not 100% sure how to think about that problem, uh, or at least how to assess it, at least, at least from like kind of right now. But um, I would say that uh, it's still likely to be very spiky for the same types of reasons that drove Silicon Valley in the first place. And, uh, but like, it's possible that 
kind of the new agglomeration of tech in Austin is going to be a salutary development because they're going to be coming at these problems in a somewhat different way. And so, and you see that in lots of other areas also where um, you see kind of rising hubs uh, challenging kind of a Schumpeterian way against existing ones. So I think that's probably an area where where we probably have some disagreement where like you, you see that remote work is mostly just like empowering sort of not even second tier hubs, but like, and tell me if I'm uh, yeah. capturing your argument, like, like, like the lower top tier hubs. So like, uh, you know, like Austin, it's like, yes. we're moving, we're moving out of the top two spread into the top 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I see more potential for, for increasing economic activity everywhere. And I don't necessarily mean in the sense that like Gary, Indiana gets to be a new tech hub, but like that it matters somewhat less where you are just as a generalization and i tend to think on the margin here because like you know rosen roback says we should all be like pretty close to indifferent between uh-huh. all these places right so it doesn't have to be the case that like the change makes every place equal in order for the change to lead to reallocation to all sorts of different places it's just it, on the margin it makes those places yeah. more desirable yeah let me say a few things here because i this is i do think we disagree in some ways which is that that you're much closer to the question of what's going to happen in the context of will more people work from home? And one thing I think about this is that the form it takes matters quite a lot. Um, Absolutely. That um, hybrid, I think it's pretty clearly is enhances the power of hubs, um, basically by increasing their commuter shed, right? So that uh, more people can commute into San Francisco with you. They can live two hours away because they can, they're only going in twice a week. And you're seeing, and the, here, like, like the gains in the suburbs of big cities in New York particularly have, are very strong. Uh, you see like Beacon, New York growing really quickly, or what I call the ice storm belt of Connecticut like kind of past Greenwich, uh, get seeing big value gains as a result of some of these effects. Um, uh, fully remote has different effects. The one question I have about these, about the kind of spreading is that it allows movement not just from between high cost and low cost places, but between low cost places and low cost places with better amenities, which you can think of as kind of, you know, and the real question to me is that if people can leave firms that are located in both New York and in Cleveland, it's completely plausible to me that people will, more people or a higher people will leave Cleveland than will leave New York. They'll move to Arizona or Florida or wherever it is. People seem to move to places that are warm. The last thing I'll say about this is that, is that what theory suggests is that the people who, for whom increasing their marginal productivity through urban location or it's like the case is strongest for it, the higher up the value add chain you go the case is higher it's improving the value the productivity of your ceo by half of one percent is like a really 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 big thing uh less true less so for maybe your accounting department and one thing you've already seen in the before times uh, was the back offices of high-end firms was already moving out. I mean, New York City yeah, financial firms didn't keep their back offices in New York City anyway. Um, and I wonder whether those things end up getting distributed. And again, from whatever hubs, they, wherever they've moved to, you know, literally anywhere, like kind of the way call centers are. And so you can see some of that also, which would not be a uh, like pure spread. It would not be a uh, increasing the relative New York versus, I don't know, what the, what, whatever second tertiary city you're talking about, but um, a different effect. So I, I think it's a very interesting question, the sort of like mid-tier cities versus the superstar cities versus like everywhere else. And, you know, if you think about like, again, to bring it back to Rosen and Roback, I think we have the value of the city. You decompose it into two components, the labor market value and the amenity value. Uh-huh. And I think of what we're doing here is sort of like turning down, like, you know, multiplying the the labor market value by say 0.75 or something like that. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, we're turning it down everywhere. So that doesn't mean that 
only places with high amenity values are going to benefit. Because if you think about a place where it has like a mediocre amenity value, but like a pretty negative labor market value relative to like for like skilled workers relative to yeah. their choice set, they could still end up being a winner here. So like uh, I think of like Philadelphia is a great example. Like if you turn down the labor market importance, um, then Philadelphia becomes like more desirable relative to Washington, D.C. and New York City because the labor market access doesn't matter as much, even though like the it's not like you would like, OK, let's list all the you know, if Philadelphia isn't up there with like Vail, you know what I mean? Right. And like ski towns or something like that. So and I think you can make a similar argument for sort of some of the heartland cities as well, where like they're right now on net, like what the story of these places for the last 20 or 30 years has been, they've been losing skilled people to superstar cities because of on net, the marginal pull of the labor market. And so when you turn that down, you're turning off the pull or you're turning down the pull. And so that yeah. they can benefit. So I, you, I can see this story again, but I can see the story going the other way, depending a little bit on your assumptions about what's actually happening, like what the what work from home is. And so again, remember first, to the extent it's hybrid, that effect goes in the opposite direction, right? So it because if you imagine that firms are hot desking in downtown San Francisco or whatever, and people are commuting from a further distance, it means there's basically it's basically increasing the space available, um, and that would increase the the size of those uh, markets. Secondly, like it is definitely the case that like if it's, there are people who move because there's jobs available in these places and otherwise would not. On the other hand, um, they're, they're, because their ties to their jobs in their places it has also reduced by assumption, um, uh, the, the, the relative amenity values of place becomes relatively more important. And so someone who moves from uh, is moving from Philadelphia to Washington for work may and now has the option for work from home may move to Miami instead of staying in Philadelphia. And like those are both plausible stories that are a little hard to disentangle, especially because all of these things are going to be happening at once. Right. right? So some people are going to be doing fully remote. Some people are going to be doing hybrid. Some people are going to be doing nothing at all. Um, and they're going to be pushing in different directions because we have a trend line that was in this direction. Uh, whether this slows the trend line, increases it, it's going to be a little hard to tell, I think, especially until things normalize a little bit. It's going to be just very hard to know. I think I, where I agree with you is that this is a bit of a shock and we're going to have to see. I'm Unlike the people who are in the real estate business, I don't think it's super important that we just like figure it out right now. Like things, A lot of things change. Things always change. And I do think there's a chance that things move in a bunch of directions. But where I am let, not on board with um, osmicism is the assumption that, uh, that like one effect is obviously stronger than the other. I definitely think we should call it Ozmec and that's great. Let's give, <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's look. You got to get a copyright in that. <laughs> I do. I do. I do think that like, well, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if the 2030 OMB definitions were increasing all of our metro area sizes. And like when you recalculate the commuting zone maps, like we've got like, you know, redefinitions of what it means to be a metro area. I think that's true because of the, because I do think there will be um, hybrid. I think it's interesting to think about like, what do we mean when we say this would be bad for San Francisco, for example, because you could, you know, you could make, imagine a world where the commuting zone area is essentially gobbled up, you know, the nearby counties and what we think of as being the San Francisco metro area or whatever, the commuting zone that encompasses San Francisco becomes much larger, larger. And so like on the whole, you have greater economic activity within three hours of san francisco mm -hmm. but that san francisco proper is dealing with higher vacancies less concentration of economic activity and um like lower house prices and uh, less stuff so in there the one thing i'd say is that 
that, again, these things are coming off uh, where prices are extraordinarily high. So the belief that they're going to be like high vacancies in the post period strikes me as like a, a really, really negative belief on the ability of markets to clear. Which again, you know, like markets don't clear perfectly. It, it happens. But like I expect to see the extent you see working from home become dominant um, or become stronger. I'd expect to see decreasing rents in commercial downtowns, which will have pretty big tax impacts on these jurisdictions. Um, uh, but whether it results in decreasing like number of people in these areas is not obvious to me because, again, the prices come down. And one effect you might see is that firms who had previously been priced out of these markets but still want to have a physical location will so, will, so a, uh, someone who has an office in Long Island uh, might take out a small office in the middle of Manhattan as the prices fall. It will increase their ability to, and their commuter shed, their effective commuter shed will increase really radically because people are only going there twice a week or whatever. But, you know, the city sort of, they they wrote up a vertical supply curve, right? Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is really the nature of what you're saying, is that, like, their demand was pushed out. They wrote up a vertical supply curve. Prices went up. Quantity didn't go up that much, so you pushed demand backwards. And what you should see is predominantly a price impact, right? Mm-hmm. So a couple of, I think there's a couple of nuances to this. Um, one is that like one of, you know, can property markets absorb decreases in prices? Yes. Can city governments? That is a separate question, yeah. right? And so I think that we, there is, I have no clue what this looks like. And it, we're actually sort of lucky to be living through, from the city perspective, to be living through this massive inflationary boom right now that's sort of like, maybe this is like, we'll give them a nice easy glide path that there's like just, strong demand everywhere so maybe in that sense they might they might be okay i do think you, we might end up with lower uh lower density of people because like some of the ways that people adapt to lower prices is using a higher square footage per person whether you're talking about an office or residential so yeah the one thing you see also is that as wages increase in cities you see the opposite effect right people really rich people and so i live on the upper west side of manhattan um the upper west side's population is falling not because and has been falling for a while not because there's no demand to live here the prices are remarkably high but because people who earn wall street wages are combining apartments and having smaller families and so that effect kind of goes in the other direction. But yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, the, the point is like these things, there's a lot of put things pushing in different directions. Yeah. And I actually, I think that really how cities make it through this is like the top cities. Um, because like, you know, when you're talking about the middle cities where the net benefit sort of, you know, we talked about how it can be positive or negative depending on like, what is your competition set? Like what are your, who, who is the marginal person going there and how does their uh, choice set change from what work? There's going to be winners and losers. And I think that a, a lot of it might depend on sort of the, how the, how the local government responds, how much they've saved for this and like, you know, what happens to local government services. Cause like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's two things I'll say is that one um, is uh, that, I mean, places win and lose over time. That's normal. Um, and governments, we need to create institutions that allow them to adapt. And so it's, uh, it is not, accidental that I'm currently working on a book on state and local fiscal crisis um, because this is like shocks happen and we want shocks to happen, right? So if we have that, in fact, in many ways, like one of the a real, pro- if we have places that are like the same dominant 50 cities for a hundred years, that we should think of that as weird. The same way we think of having the same dominant firms for 50 or hundred years, right? Like people should move as technology changes and as transportation and as the economy changes. It's good. But it does create like a need to rebalance our uh, fiscal, st- you know, thing. And this is one of the reasons I'm a big fan of municipal bankruptcy, because it's basically like like dealing with the legacy costs of a place that used to be big and now isn't. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I'm I'm uh, you know I see a lot of worrying trends when we've had like success uh, excessively concentrated 
geographically in the country in, in a handful of places increasingly over. But I think that there's two pieces to adapting to that better. One is, you know, um, like technologies and changes like remote work that help people live wherever they want and don't feel like they need to live in the handful of superstar cities. But I do think that there's a place too for like helping places that are dealing with those that population loss because, you know, economists used to, I think less so, but they used to, and some of them still do sort of wave their hands at declining populations like, oh, this is awesome. We're equilibrating, like great. The wages of everyone who stays behind will go up and everything will be fine. And they don't really deal with that nitty gritty problem of like, uh, well, you know, the infrastructure here is built for double the population. So like, uh, th- we're not really equilibrating. Yeah. Now. But I, I mean, I think that the, the one type of response people give is that what we need to do is prop those places up, places that are declining for whatever reason up. And to me, this is like the wrong type of response. It's like saying, um, the answer to one firm defeating another firm in competition is that, and which would create all sorts of losses for people who are at that firm or the investment, but it's to to subsidize losing firms. But instead, it's to say, what can we do to make the market equilibrate more fast, more quickly? Um, and that could be people-based subsidies. It could be um, it could be mutual bankruptcy. There's a lot of it. The one thing we want is for people, or the thing that's important for growth is that whatever technological thing, if people want to work from home and like that it becomes a huge demand to live in warm places, which is generally where people who have choice where to live, like retirees choose to live, then we should accommodate that and we should come up with things to, we should, the, the political efforts should not be on saving declining places, but ra- or, or kind of maintaining them at their past population, but rather at like making their structures fit their current economic situation. Well, I think if you take a highly, you know, localized look at that, like within the U.S., should we be taxing successful places to redistribute to unsuccessful places in order to preserve the population there? I agree that there's like not a great case for that economically speaking, but I think if you step a wider new global view um a lot of places that we think of as struggling within the u.s competitive context of cities are massively globally desirable and right. they're massively globally desirable to high-skilled people too so like to, i i wouldn't characterize that as like sort of like a you know bailing out or redistributing to me that's like it's more like price discriminating immigrants well, like so you if, can come here and you can locate in those places yeah. if what you're talking about is increasing immigration to get people to live in declining places i'm all for I think increasing immigration would be good across any number of dimensions. Uh, but what you're talking about is like cash subsidies. That's different. And of course, by the way, we already tax more successful places uh, a lot. That's what a progressive income tax does, right? So that someone in a erosion rollback sort of way uh, has a choice between living in a low income place with a low cost of living and a high income place and a high cost of living. And we tax them the income because if they they're they should be indifferent between those two things but if they move to the high income high tax high cost of living type of place they will they pay more in federal income taxes and that is a net subsidy that comes from the nature of our tax system for not moving to high income places um for people who are otherwise equally situated the same talent level the same if you're into optimal tax theory they're the same person and so we already do a great deal of this. And of course, we do it in lots of other ways, from agriculture, subsidies, all sorts of things to subsidize declining or kind of uh, your non-San Francisco's of the world. And we should expect that because of the nature of our political system, among other things. Um, but um, so we do it. Um, and but if what you're saying is like, like, yes, the like, it's not like Cincinnati is um, unattractive to people from Mexico. I'm 100 percent there with you. Um, yeah. I- and- I think we're in agreement on like kind of the top three things for, the pla- for places is like, you, I'm, I'm in agreement with you on like municipal sort of bailouts, especially when they come with like things that sort of restructure the, the local government and take away decision-making power. Like, cause you know, a lot of the municipal problems they, they got in these places because of bad pension policies and stuff like that. And you would prevent that from happening again. 
So as long as it comes with those sorts of things, I'm in favor of municipal, uh, you know, targeted municipal bailouts as well. You know, high skilled immigration. And then I think you would probably agree with maybe some more property tax equalization, right? Or like, you know, uh, do you see a role there? Because yeah. I know that that's one of the things you brought up in your paper. You're concerned that remote work is sort of going to lead to like a negative tie out competition in a sense. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that one thing is that to the extent you see either a big increase in hybrid or a big increase in fully remote, the way that conceptualizes that it increases the commuter shed, right? So either to the further parts of a metropolitan region or to literally anywhere. And one thing that we've always thought about commuting is that it's a constraint on sorting. And so we think of sorting, TBO sorting, as a good thing, like people get to choose their mix of services, but because governments are funded through, um, uh, uh, local governments are largely funded through own source revenue, or at least partially funded through own source revenue, particularly through property taxes, the effect can be to concentrate wealth in certain areas. And so uh, one thing I think that we, that, that like, to the extent we see a big increase in this, it will increase the case for property tax equalization across jurisdictions. Yes. Um, and uh, by the way, the case of this was already strong. My colleague, Zach Lisko, has a really brilliant paper on how um, the school equalization uh, um, uh, litigation of the 70s, 80s, 90s and continuing had a big effect on the very phenomenon, the rise of cities we're talking about, because it had I mean, cities by their very nature, by the, the opportunities they create, attract lots of poor people. And this creates pressure on taxes and uh uh, that the school equalization stuff sent a lot of money both to rich places and also to rural places, it turns out. And this had the effect of kind of increasing demand to live in cities. Yeah, I totally agree with all that. Let me stop being a mic hog here. I'm going to open up to Arpit and Matt. Guys, you got questions or comments, David? So one thing I was hoping to follow up on is the discussion you were having about how, uh, you know, you might have declining economic activity kind of in the center of the city uh, while people kind of move elsewhere. And there's a recent report on this uh, that the New York City Comptroller did that estimated that New York City sales tax revenue might decline something like $100 million a year, right, as people are spending less money during their kind of normal mm -hmm. office commutes. Now, one, one kind of question I had, uh, I guess, especially for David, but both of you, you know, does this have any impacts on, like, what's the right size of the jurisdiction here, right? Obviously, we have a very fragmented system of urban governance, and maybe a work makes that even less suited to the extent that people are sprawled out over an even larger effective commuting radius, effective city that might be politically split up into all these kind of tiny uh, independent political... It's a great question. I'll give my answer and then Adam give his. Um, but I will say two things. One is that I'm a in the medium run a little less worried about sales tax revenue because, again, I think that the offices won't be empty. Um, I think the price will come down, but I don't think the offices will be empty. And sales, so we'll say what happens, but sales tax revenue has certainly fallen during the pandemic as people kind of leave their offices empty, waiting for people to come back. But property tax revenue, I think, was surely. And I, I'm always been a fan of larger regional governments. New York City is obviously a very large government, so it's maybe not the best example for this. But uh, that that the case for regionalism increases and the case for localism falls on equality grounds. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I'm in Pennsylvania and the amount of municipalities we have is hilarious. It is like you will be at like, especially when you get in the more rural parts of the state, like you'll be at an intersection. You'll be like, well, there's eight houses. This is a town now. Yeah. Uh, so definitely I'm in favor of that. And I want to add one thing to that, which is that one of the ways, the problems of overlapping local governments and local governmental complication is it's very hard for citizens to figure out who they're who, like, who to complain to um, and to use use voice or voting to control governments. But if you work near where you live, you're connected in two ways. Um, but if you're working in some other place completely, um, your connection to your community may decline really substantially. And so the existing voter ignorance problem in local politics, which is a very severe problem, becomes even more dramatic. That's a great point. Matt, let me put you on the spot here. Um, 
David in his paper argues that, and David, correct me if I'm describing this wrong, but that ICT technologies are increases in them are just as likely to be improve things for companies in big cities as they are for companies out of big cities. So should we really see this as like benefiting on net places out of big cities more? David, is that the right description? I, I mean, it's not quite what I put it, but it's close enough. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I'd say is that that's historically the trend that ICT, at least in the pre-Zoom era, um, had a big positive effect on superstar cities. Yeah. I'm, Matt, I'm curious your thoughts. I would agree. And um, so like, I guess, you know, one thing I wanted, I've been sort of thinking about uh, from the beginning is, you know, just talking way back at the beginning about what is the reason for agglomeration and uh, David pointing out, you know, back to Marshall, like shipping costs, specialization, labor market matching and sort of knowledge or information spillovers. And I like uh -huh. to think about how like, um, you know, you can think of the hierarchy almost of remote work as like, you know, basically having the same advantages, like co-located super cities, uh, they get all these things, but a hybrid super city with a bigger commuter shed, then you have, you know, you can amplify these things, more specialization, bigger match or better matching, and spillovers with even more people. And then I think of like fully remote as sort of like, you can almost think of that as, you know, if you, you know, pay the cost of allowing, you know, transitioning to a remote uh, way of working, uh, it's like you move to this gigantic digital city where in theory, maybe you could have all the things, you know, it's like moving to a bigger yet city. And so, I think the big question is basically, does the technology really let you do that yet? Or uh, otherwise, I think we're kind of moving to this like hybrid super city model, like you said, which is sort of like possibly superstar cities on steroids. Um, yeah. But, you know, if, if you can if you can go all the way to the digital city, basically, it seems like the same things that Marshall was saying about physical cities 100 years ago apply there in sort of an even stronger force. Yeah. What I would say is that I think it might break apart some of these things. So. Uh, the labor market effects, I think it's obviously clear, if you can have a national labor market, then you're really getting a lot of this matching and specialization. I think that some of uh, your reports have kind of focused on this, and I think that's tr certainly true and powerful. Um, but the the spillovers thing is more complicated because um, it's not like people in big cities aren't also on the internet doing all the spillovery things, right? So like, I'm sitting in New York City, and I am on Twitter spaces, which is like the most, right, and, and I'm on Twitter or email or Slack or whatever, and I use that. It's just that my other interactions may produce spillovers that are different from someone who lives in Wyoming. Uh, I, I would just jump in to say I agree with that. Yeah, that you yeah. kind of have it's like an and, not a right. And so the but the but the labor market effect side, it's like that's very clear that uh, uh, the more bigger your labor market shed, which fully hybrid really gets you to a very very large labor market shed, uh, then you know like you're really talking about uh, blow exploding the the benefits of that. And I think that the transition effects are really big and real. Um, a, a good friend of mine who's in the commercial real estate business says that there's only two types of people who are going to come back to the office. The first is people who want to advance. And the second is people who don't want to be fired. But that's everybody. Um, and so I'm not quite where he is. But um, it is definitely the case that our institutions were designed for a world of in-person work. And figuring out the market institutions and firm space firm organization for a different world would be a very complicated and difficult transition. So I want to disagree a bit on the idea that, um, you know, people in big cities, they get access to the same sort of, let's call them digital, like digital social agglomerations. So mm -hmm. like it doesn't really affect that. Think of the total, like total uh, social agglomerations happening, like total mm -hmm. social spillovers. Mm -hmm. I would argue that the increasing reliance on digital, what that does is it puts a greater percent of all social spillovers accessible wherever you are. And that relatively speaking, that does lower the desirability of being in the city. I mean, like it's, you have like, like 
you know, it used to be the case that like 90% of the interesting conversations, for example, uh, were happening on, you know, college campuses in the economics department, big cities. And then, you know, as uh, econ Twitter grows, for example, even if you don't believe this, can think of it as like a theoretical example, like a greater percent of the interesting conversations are happening on here. So the relative desirability of being in the big city is down, even though in that big city, you still have access to that. So I don't think it's quite as simple as saying it's an and for everybody. I think it narrows the gap. Oh, I think that I think that's that's fair, depending on your 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 situation. But I, it doesn't equalize; it may decrease the gap. Is I think yes. that's a, that's a fair a fair response. Um, but it's a um the the one thing I'll say to that, which is that it may in some ways expand the value of the information that is not viable in a like because it becomes more it becomes like kind of more scarce. But that but yes, absolutely, I don't disagree with what you just said. Uh, Arpit, Matt, any other questions for David or uh, replies to anything he said? One thing I, w- I want to kind of touch on is uh, something Connor Sen uh, tweeted, uh, I think, earlier today or yesterday, which is that, well, in a world, if you think that Amazon is going to kind of set the bottom end of the wage distribution and they're going to pay something like $21 an hour, maybe, for their warehouse employees, you know, and more broadly with kind of the supply chain kind of disruptions we have, is it really still the case that housing regulation is the main uh, barrier or constraint on construction, right, to the extent that we have all of these other constraints, uh, labor costs, material costs, so on and so forth. So should we, you know, does that change our relative focus on the role of regulations versus these other kinds of constraints and frictions in inhibiting yeah. housing? Yeah, so I mean, look, I would say that is that, like, I think that many of these things are uh, short, the, like, the phenomenon and building cities is something that happens on a much longer time scale. So it's completely plausible to me that uh, the, the, the rate at which a zoning change results in actual buildings slows during this period, uh, kind of traditional period. But I'm like, the thing is, is that even if you see a decrease in demand in inner ring New York and inner ring San Francisco, and even if the cost of construction workers go up, the cost, the lost value created by, I don't know, the huge minimum, minimum lot sizes in Greenwich is so, so, so big that it's still the binding constraint. At least in, I mean, you can imagine that there are markets where that's not true, but in our San Francisco's, New York's, Los Angeles's, Washington's, Boston's, it's such a huge effect. I mean, the size of the effect people are talking about is so friggin' enormous that it's like, I saw that and I thought it was like a clever point, um, uh, but I, I think it's it's wrong. I mean, what do you think? I mean, I, I agree with that as well. Um, I, I tend to also think that the, you know, the, the role of kind of housing instructions remains kind of the binding constraint in these kind of superstar cities. But I, I do kind of wonder the extent to which the kind of, changing nature of the economy has shifted to make other constraints also bind and be potentially in other places, right? And I think particularly um, the kind of constraints that are going on with home builders. But, you know, I think it sort of turns out, this is, I guess, another Clausemeckian sort of point. I think sort of the nature of our sort of financial collapse in the recovery period just seems to have wiped out all of these home builders. And they just were kind of left with very little capacity. You know, people kind of left the construction industry and went elsewhere. And so that just kind of means the whole sector seems to have been just a little sluggish and responding to new demand, even when it comes to single family construction, mm-hmm. right? So that's, again, not to negate the importance of regulation, but to think more broadly about what, what are the sorts of things constraining our housing supply. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I mean, what I'd say is that there's a really big supply side constraint that comes from the general problem of lack of growth in construction productivity. And you see it in housing, you see it in roads, you see it in subway systems, you see that our, our construction industry is like one of our least, no matter how you measure it, some people measure it in negative productivity growth, other people say, no, that's wrong, it's a composition effect, it's just really, really slow productivity growth. Um, and solving this problem is a of extreme would have extreme social value. And I don't, I mean, the solutions to it are complicated. I'm 
again, my, my co- Leah Brooks and my colleague Zach Liskow have a really nice point on kind of the role litigation plays in driving up costs and what they call citizen voice. Um, but it is a definitely a real problem. Uh, let's let's we let's take some time to open it up to the audience. See if we've got any questions. We've got some really great uh, listeners. I can see you guys. I can see your faces there. We've got Jerusalem Demsis. We've got Alice Evans. We've got uh, Skanda. We've got some really smart people there. Anybody got any questions? I want to ask. Okay, no questions yet. So uh, while we're waiting, <laughs> can I say something we agree yeah, about? Actually, so this was, one of the things that I, that I think is important is that the question of like positively what's going to happen like it's work from home and where people live to me is, I mean, it's an important question. It's a really important question. If you're a real estate investor, it's important. If you're setting local budgets, you can imagine a lot of questions for which it's very important. Um, but the central question should be, I think a kind of broad neutrality about these questions, which is that we want people to move where it is that the technology and economy of the time allows them to. And that uh, the same instinct behind like expanding the housing supply in New York or San Francisco drives a, uh, like comfort with the possibility that many people might move to Phoenix to work from home. There are obviously some ways in which this could be problematic. Think of uh, commute, like uh, greenhouse gas emissions due to greater driving or whatever, but, uh, and certainly some of the equality concerns, but the broadly speaking, the right normative stance, and I think you and I agree on this is like a neutrality, like people should move whatever, ever they can, whatever the economy, and then we should seek to create governing tools that accommodate that rather than seeking to decide for them. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, thinking about like expanding choice sets is really, you know, we should be we should be relatively neutral, but excited about expanding choice sets. Like we should be neutral what people choose, but when they have more choice, that is that's a, like a, a positivist outcome. And I do think that that's what we're seeing. It's sort of what ties the YIMBY movement and remote work together. I know that they're often cast as like oppositional. Uh, I don't agree with that, but I think that what ties them together is they both want expanded choice sets for people, and then to let people choose. I think that we've talked about sort of three relatively easy, I, I don't know, easy to us uh, policies that would help places that are struggling. And so I would I would say, let's see what they do and then think about whether we need to do more from there. Um, because I, you know, I'm a neoliberal economist. I, I feel very strongly pulled toward the neutrality, but I see the externalities of decline. Um, and I don't know that we should be that neutral towards them. So I don't know, David, I'm, yes. I'm going to put myself as a question mark there, I think. Okay, you put yourself as a question mark. I'm going to, I will go more, neo, which the one thing to note is that there are a lot of poor people in rich places. And this is something that sometimes gets, gets lost in the kind of places versus people, which is that there are like one of the effects of focusing aid on, uh, you know, building roads in West Virginia or whatever, or like the horrors of the modern opportunity zone program is to ignore the fact that there are you know, more poor people in New York City than there are in many states. I mean, um, large number because, but, but the very function of the fact that they're like, it's economically successful, right? Which is like, it's, if you're going to move from somewhere far away, um, you're frequently going to move to a place where there's going to be lots and lots of job opportunities and already existing immigrant communities. And so like, the one thing I always worry about in these contexts where people are like, we really need to worry about the declining place is like, it ignores that like the Bronx exists. Um, and that's a very poor place, um, full of very, very many poor people, even though it's in the middle of New York. So you say the hard is the opportunity zones, but then you talk about the places in the big cities where lots of poor people are. And I mean, that, those are there, one of the criticisms of opportunity zones is that there are opportunity zones in those places. And so oh, I think that that's sort of yeah, a contradiction. I, people want, people want, oh, it's more the critics of I mean, the opportunity I mean, zones who miss who missed the within big, big city problems. 
No, I mean, so here's what I'd say about the Opportunity Center program, which is that the case for place-based policy, which Opportunity Center is an example, assume they're going to achieve certain ends for certain peoples. And the actual version of them that we actually get uh, ends up not looking at all like that. Um, uh, when I say the horrors of the Opportunity Center, I actually mean both of these problems. So, like, it like, doesn't make any sense to subsidize locate people. It's a, the building new offices in Hell's Kitchen, which are in an Opportunity Zone, doesn't achieve either one of the helping poor people in New York City or helping poor people in West Virginia. It's just dumb. Well, I don't um, think you can... You, I, but it's driven... So... Yeah. I, I don't think you can separate the outcome from the mechanism, the other things that it achieves. Like, what Opportunity Zones meant, mean to do, and I do think they do accomplish doing, is, like, being less directive and in, in terms of what you have to do in order to, um, you know, receive the tax benefits. Like, if you compare it to something like new market tax credits, for example, like, you know, they make you do a lot of work to get a new market tax credit. But what that ends up doing is being, like, this massive, like, informational task burden you know, like, what do we really care about these um, fake jobs multipliers anyway? And it's like, you can't, like, it, it's trying to put gasoline to create normal um, economic development in these places without trying to, like, I think, counterproductively force it to look like a specific way. So I think, I think it's addressing right, I, that. I see what you're saying. What I would say is that case that, so the people who promote place-based policies from Tim Bartek to Patrick Klein all focus on the way in which they might better target aid than the alternative to place-based policies, which traditionally thought of as like just welfare, I think the child tax credit or something. And the if you think of those two as alternatives, the case for place-based policies is that uh, using income doesn't tag necessarily target need, right? You'll get trust fund kids, you'll get people, you'll get students, you'll get whatever that are um, not actually the most economically depressed. And further, giving money to people doesn't necessarily allow for spending on public goods that might have higher value uses. If you look at the reality of place-based policies through the Opportunity Zone programs, what we see is that they don't achieve that end. If the goal is better targeting, building a high-end office space in Manhattan or Ritz-Carlton in Portland, or downtown Portland, doesn't like. It, there's no evidence that it will outperform the child tax credit solving poverty problems. Um, like, and and because the, the thing about the play, argument for place-based policies that I find really problematic in this targeting question is that it requires them to have a very, very specific form uh, to ensure that the benefits are going to the current residents of impoverished places who are theoretically the more better targeted to receive aid than simply people with kind of current low incomes according to their tax returns. And the the um, the bringing these systems through our actual political systems where we end up spreading everything because of pork, kind of the nature of Congress to produce pork spending and the delegations of states who then have an incentive to put the highest end places. So every state designated lots and lots of places that were not actually impoverished because they qualified under the formal, the, the categorizations using the Opportunity Zone program. And so what I would say is that if you start, if the question you're asking is, does Opportunity Zones beat the child tax credit at targeting need? I think it's like really hard to argue. Yes. I mean, you wouldn't really ask that question, though. Or the que like this is like you know, you face the same sort of problem whenever like you're talking about any type of urban development. Like, oh, is that the be highest best use for reducing poverty? Like, I mean, you might you might use similar arguments for NIMBYism. Like, oh no, we shouldn't be building like these high end buildings. We should be building like you know this kind of housing. And it's like you have to take into consideration the directed versus undirected nature. From like to me, I see opportunity zones as a vote in favor of like let's try to stimulate urban redevelopment in these places because urban redevelopment is good even if we can't like in demand be directed in particular ways and also recognizing it the trying to direct it in particular ways it can be counterproductive right i mean what i'd say is that the 
the question here, again, like you are making trade-offs inside a budget. I mean, unless you like, uh, you're taking like a, there are no trade-offs in fiscal, the fiscal space that like we can, buy, we can buy everything type of position. There's some trade-off to be made here. The question of like, uh, that's the right, that's the question to be asking because the policy is not meant to optimally produce development, right? Or to allow, um, to uh, encourage the greatest amount of economic output total. Because if it was that, it wouldn't exist. It would just be a general subsidy or something. Or, you know, like, it's not that. It's not aimed at just like subsidizing construction. You could come up with broad subsidies for building stuff or for firms or whatever else. Um, and so it really is meant to be an anti-poverty program. And then you should compare it among the class of anti-poverty programs. That's my take on it so okay well let's move on from opportunity zones we've yes. got some oh by the way really quickly i'm gonna have an essay coming up in scanning about just this so get excited okay well i would just say like a review of david wessel's book all right we will uh we'll keep our eyes out for that jerusalem let's open yeah. up the floor Andrew is a speaker hello um <laughs> been a great conversation so far I, I was i was wondering a lot about the um you know, the climate mitigation strategies you all have been thinking about when it comes to remote work. I mean, specifically when it turn, comes to, to hybrid work, it seems like there's like a whole hornet's nest there in terms of, you know, people are sprawling out more, looking for space or whatever. And obviously you don't want to be decreasing people's choice sets legislatively, but if there's anything that you thought about in terms of how you can allow that to happen without creating all the, the, the ancillary harms, just thoughts there. I think it's a great question. I mean, I think that that it's a real problem. And like, I'm going to give a boring neoliberalish answer, which is like, this really enhances the case for carbon taxes. Um, because to the extent that we want that a lot of innovations in the transportation or other space will take the form of uh, in less and also for congestion pricing for uh, increasing uh, or rather decreasing the cost of transportation one way or another. Um, and but for work from home, you've got some complex effects in the sense that like people might not be commuting, so that's good for get bumped in their hand. They're gonna be living in places that are less urban, and therefore they're driving more to get their groceries and drop their kids off at school or whatever. Um, and so the like I, my my again, this is like I don't know, very uh, very boring set of takes on it, but like I think there's no solution other than pricing. Um, so you're saying we're doomed, David? Oh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, I, you know, like I don't know that work from home is what's making us doomed, rather than any of other things making us doomed. I mean, if you want to be positive about it, and I don't really see why you would, um, what I would say is that, in the extent that you're very, very worried about our ability to mitigate climate change risk, uh, work from home offers the possibility of kind of greater adaptation, right? So if a third of the United States gets flooded or something, then it'd be a lot easier to all of all of us to transition to living on tops of mountains in a work from home world. Well, that wow. is, that can, is I, bleak. can I jump in to say that there is a, a study that came out in 2021 that was like a spatial simulation of LA with more hybrid remote or hybrid work. And they calculated like a decline in commuting and sort of emissions in their model. Hmm. And that's that's the only thing I know. Wow, do you know where that's from? Uh, it's, it's, it's like off the top of my head and I will uh, DM you if you wanna know. Yeah, I mean, as yeah. long as the percent of time that they drive to work declines by more than the percent of increase in their distance, Hybrid workers should be consuming less uh, energy. So that assumes that driving is that going to work is the only major driving. And like one of the things we see is that like uh, the more dense your population area, the less you drive or the fewer trips you take for to go out and get the groceries or whatever else. So it's like there's a bunch of effects. Sure, that's true. Also, I, I do think, though, that, you know, I'm an optimist on the full fully remote. And so I think it's hard to. It's hard to make up for um, 58 minutes a day of driving. That's the average for commuters. It's hard to make that up in trips to the grocery store and shopping. I don't know how much you shop, David, but that would be a that'd be a, that'd be a lot of bounce back. <laughs> I have all my groceries delivered, so it's somewhat driving, but it's not big. I just want to reiterate on that uh, resiliency point, though, because I think you know one thing we've seen even in the last few months is 
uh, you know, there was kind of the, the shock to Houston. And you look at kind of the data, a lot of people were basically working during that time period at home instead of at the office. Um, here in New York, we had like a mini hurricane, uh, you know, a few months ago. Uh, same thing, people work at home instead. And, you know, and teaching at NYU, our plan is in future kind of snow day situations, we'll just switch to do it on, online. Right. So I think there are, there are kind of many ways in which uh, this kind of like remote hybrid work kind of helps people deal with and, and cope with on the resilient side, the uh, kind of climate issues that kind of pop up. Um, but, you know, another way of looking at it is that it makes it, you know, you're kind of pushing the risk onto the household rather than the firm and uh, being able to cope with these things. And the parents, just FYI. Right. So like if there are no snow days. Uh, um, you're going to be doing a lot of teaching from home like we just did over the past year. And Adam, you, you just raised something I, I was hoping to just follow up on. You said something about how, you know, you're not sure about what would happen if we got to fully remote work, what the climate impacts there would be. Do folks have intuitions about whether that would reduce or increase climate impacts? I feel like it's really hard. I guess it really depends on where people move. But. So I, I think positive. I think positive. Like I said, 58 minutes a day is the average commute time. Um, so I think that, like, to me, getting rid of that is such a huge first order effect that I would be very surprised if it is uh, offset by other types of utilization. I mean, like. I'm a fully remote person. I certainly don't go grocery shopping in the car for 58 minutes a day. I don't head to the mall for 58 minutes a day. So, um, well, sure, but like heating and cooling costs of like individual single-family homes versus dense, you know, urban, you know, uh, office buildings feels like a, a big shift. Yeah, I guess my instinct on this is just that it's a um, is that like it's it at best it's not a solution to them. Right. So that's the way I'd put it, which is that I could see Adam's argument that it does reduce community, it does reduce driving. On the other hand, because roads aren't priced, the decreased will then be, you know, they'll decrease the price of driving for other people, which will increase not just their commuting, the amount of time they go grocery shopping, but the amount of time everybody goes grocery shopping. And so, again, like, like the solution to traffic is congestion pricing. It's not building more roads or uh, work from home. I mean, I'd like to, I guess, disagree somewhat with, with David there in the, just in the sense that I, I'm actually a little skeptical of the kind of carbon tax solution here. And that's true, I think, both for political economy reasons, right? It's been, it's been pretty hard. I think there are ways to do it in some states, but it's, it's clearly been very difficult to implement uh, generally. And then I think more broadly, I think what we need is innovation, right? So I think what we, we kind of, any kind of static solution here that's based on, well, we'll price it or, well, we'll kind of move people from here to here. I think the, the best solutions that we have really involve like much more dramatic innovation and changes and things that are kind of going on in the background, right? So it's like moving the entire energy infrastructure to more renewable sources, getting more solar, nuclear fusion, whatever it is. Um, I see that as, as a much more you know positive yeah. way of responding to it. And so I think what, you know, so again, I think the resiliency point is, is the actually potentially more important one here, because that's the area in which I think remote work can kind of make a big difference and kind of solving climate change will require, in any case, dynamic solutions that I think are more innovation based. Yeah, if I can go even like further into the like futuristic kind of thinking about this uh, and make a point that I don't think anybody's going to find compelling, but I believe it. And that's the, I think that when you take a lot of like higher income people who live in urban areas right now and they are able to work remote, I think a lot of them are going to prefer to live in places that are more rural and access to wilderness because like there's just, you know, it's, it's been hard if you, if you happen to like outdoor life and also have a high skilled job with the pool of agglomeration. It's been hard to satisfy that, like that in, until now with like a lifestyle choice. And so I do think we're going to see more people moving into sort of like farther flung communities. And I think that like when you take high income, more liberal knowledge workers and you start, they start, you start building new single family communities around them. They're going to be new communities that are focused on, um, you know, green, sustainable living, just because I think that's going to tend to be the kind of person who can work like this and who wants to be outside and has the income for it. And so my, my hope is that we start to see innovation in like types of places, like 
new types of villages, communities that are potential that's opened up there for that kind of living. And, you know, that we see new ways of providing sustainable energy to those places. Yeah. So I am very skeptical of that story for its worth. Like, I think that, uh, first of all, the types of the belief that the only types of people who will be moving from cities are going to be like liberal San Francisco people as opposed to people who are currently commuting to offices to work in energy in Houston. Like, it's, those are a lot of different, there are a lot of different possible uh, cases. And further, like, most people have unbelievably preferences. Like, they live in the city now, they're younger, they move to the suburbs where they're older. And, like, I don't know. I, the idea that we're going to be seeding uh, 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 rural Tennessee with um, environmental entrepreneurs seems to me to be a little well, utopian. But, I, so I, mean, I, I, will know, take the, I will take the a little bit utopian for sure. I will take that. But I also think you don't need like a lot of people for this to be a big difference. If we're talking about 20% of the labor market remote and we're talking about another 50% hybrid, like, you know, and it, it doesn't seem crazy to me to think that there's a few hundred thousand people who want like to want to live in new types of places that weren't technologically possible before, but now technology allows it. And so I do think that that's go- coming from zero. Those are significant numbers, even if we accept that do- doesn't describe anywhere near describe the median person. I think things that describe- yeah, I think like- you're going to see a lot more people want to live on golf courses, which is what people, you know, like when people have free choice, absent commuting, you look at young retirees, but they move to Arizona. I don't know. I think we'll see some of that too, but I think it, it, I think there's a lot more diversity of preferences. And that you need sort of like, so we'll see. But my final comment is a lot of this, I think a lot of this is actually like, you know, not that many people are going to move. Not everybody who benefits remote work is going to move. There's also going to be people who stay planted and they have the same sort of general commuting patterns as they always would have had minus the commute. And I think that's like part of the story too. That's, that's my last comment. Yeah, that's a great point. When we think about like, what are the effects on population in sort of the mid-tier places and rural places, the, the, the ability to not leave, that's part of the story as well. Um, let's take uh, one more one more question here from Andrew, and then we'll, we'll call it a day. Andrew Barnhill. Hello. Hi, Andrew. Go ahead. Yeah, I had a question, but I also, you know, relating to this subject, I have a comment to maybe give you guys a little bit of hope. I actually live in a in a, a kind of like a new urban setting, about thirty miles from Atlanta. This is kind of like in a suburban area that's a little urban center. Literally, I have like 20 restaurants within a quarter mile of my, my door. Most people here work remotely. I work from home, and I went from a commute to Atlanta of about 20,000 miles you know, on my car a year to about 3,000 now. And you're seeing these little uh, what I, I'm, remote urban centers going up all over metro Atlanta and other cities. And I think because people kind of like this, they kind of like having a little bit of density with, like I said, you can walk to restaurants, grocery stores, little clothing boutiques and things of that nature. Uh, but yet they're not in the middle of a big downtown conglomerate. And I think you, this is a trend I think you're going to see more and more of. That's a, that's a great example, Andrew. Sounds like you're having that positive environmental uh, impact that we talked about. Uh, David, I'm going to give it to you for uh, any closing thoughts you have, or should we wrap oh, it up? This was really fun. I don't really have anything more to add. It's, um, I, I think that the two things that I would take away from this is there's a lot of disagreement on the positive predictions, about what's going to happen. And that should be expected given the, like, if you imagine a technological shock and we're living in the middle of it, our ability to predict the future should be, you know, it should, the, the, the variance should be increasing. But the uh, kind of broadly speaking, with some caveats, uh, a liberalism of choices is a attractive normative stance to take in the face of this uncertainty. Great point to close on. Uh, more choice, more choice coming, more choice happening. Thank you, David. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks, and Matt, and Jerusalem, and Andrew for the questions and comments. Thanks, everybody.